it's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. Always good to be here. All right. I can hear you, so that's good. What's on the agenda today? <laughs> uh, well, the first thing on the agenda, I think the fact pattern is great. It's a, a case brought by Subway, the as in the sandwich store, uh, against a uh, operation in Vancouver called Budway Cannabis and Wellness Store. Uh, and this was a application uh, brought under three different sections of the Trademarks Act, with Subway claiming that Budway uh, had interfered with the uh, provisions of the Subway trademarks. And so the uh, the essential fact pattern is that this uh, unlicensed cannabis store in Vancouver uh, had done itself up to look a whole lot like a Subway store, but with Budway rather than Subway. Uh, in the logo, you know, the kind of curvy, arrowed logo. Yeah, yeah. And then, then they, to add to the effect, uh, they also had the benefit uh, of a mascot. And the mascot in this case was a uh, life-sized submarine sandwich with cannabis leaves sticking out of it uh, with apparently bloodshot, half-open eyes. Uh, and the, uh, the mascot dancing around smoking what appeared to be a joint. Uh, and then a lo- the... <laughs> caption online for this was, it's the way, bud, appearing below it. Uh, And so this prompted Subway, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, to uh, sue Budway uh, and the fellow that they allege owned it uh, for doing various things in contravention of the Trademarks Act. And they claimed that this uh, efforts were uh, passing off uh, to look like Subway, uh, that it was an infringement of the trademark, uh, and that it had the effect of depreciating the goodwill of Subway. Now, one of the interesting things about that uh, is that this isn't the first time uh, that there has been an issue with a marijuana uh, dispensary in Vancouver using a name awfully similar uh, to a retail establishment. And in fact, last year, there was the case of Toys R Us suing Herbs R Us. <laughs> Uh, for a very similar allegation of infringing trademarks. Yes. And Herbs R Us had a logo that looked a whole lot like Toys R Us, but they got the R the right way. Uh, <laughs> and so in Herbs R Us, sorry, the, the to- Toys R Us sued Herbs R Us under these same sections of the Trademark Act. And interestingly, in the Herbs R Us case, which is referenced in the Bud's, uh, the Bud case, the Subway case, uh, again, uh, Toys R Us alleged that Herbs R Us was passing off in contravention of uh, Section 7B of the Trademark Act. And very interestingly, in Herbs R Us, on that argument, they failed. And it, both in Herbs R Us, I should say, both in Herbs R Us and uh, in the Budway case, uh, Neither of the uh, uh, stores or uh, owners seemed to be able to develop the motivation necessary to actually show up in court uh, and contest these efforts. Perhaps that's a function of the product they were selling. Yes. Uh, but in Herbs R Us, despite the fact that the Herbs R Us people didn't even show up to defend it, Toys R Us was unsuccessful in trying to establish that Herbs R Us had been passing off under the Trademark Act. And the reason that they failed in that part of their claim, at least, was, as the judge described it, the, quote, profound differences between the goods and services of Herbs R Us and those of Toys R Us, uh, such that the judge could not conclude that a consumer, even a casual one, someone in a hurry with imperfect information uh, or recollection of Toys R Us, uh, would uh, infer 
that these two things were the same entity, right? You know, yes. the person going into the Herbs R Us store, probably not confusing it, thinking that, is this really a Toys R Us? Oh, well, here I am. I guess I'll buy a bunch of marijuana. Now, the Toys R Us case succeeded uh, on the basis, to a limited extent, on the basis that the Herbs R Us people were likely depreciating the goodwill uh, of Toys R Us, uh, but they did not succeed on the passing off claim. Now, in the Subway case, uh, even though, again, it wasn't defended, uh, in fact, Subway succeeded on that argument. And the reason that they succeeded on that part of their argument was that the Subway trademarks, uh, when they're filed, there's an indication of what they're supposed to be associated with. And in the Subway case, they were to be associated with sandwiches, prepared salads, buns and rolls, cookies, muffins, pastries, beverages, namely fruit juice, vegetable juice, soft drinks, tea and coffee. Uh, and the uh, Budway people, uh, in addition to having the dancing uh, Subway mascot with marijuana sticking out of it, uh, were also uh, uh, had postings online advertising their edible cannabis products, bracket cookies and brownies. For sale with the caption, Munchie Mondays, with 10% off all edibles. And so in the Budway case, in addition to using a very similar logo and having the dancing sandwich, they also happen to be selling cookies. Uh, and because the uh, Budway people were advertising edible cannabis products, cookies and brownies, things which were also sold by Subway, unlike in the uh, Toys R Us, Herbs R Us case, the Subway was in fact successful uh, in that part of their claim. The uh, claim that they were passing off themselves uh, in a way that could cause somebody to think, well, perhaps this is Subway selling these cannabis-filled cookies. Uh, and so there was success, and the result for uh, the, uh, the Budway people uh, was that they wound up with uh, a, an injunction ordering uh, that uh, Budway stop doing what they were doing, uh, and they wound up with uh, damages uh, in the amount of $15,000, and as well, uh, they wound up with a costs order against them for $25,000, uh, even though the, they didn't show up to defend uh, the case. The court accepted that that was the cost incurred uh, by Subway in going through all of the machinations necessary to come to court uh, and prove the uh, infringement, uh, even though uh, there was no particular effort to defend it. Um, and so uh, I suppose that may leave questions about how successful uh, Subway is going to be collecting their uh, $40,000 from Budway, uh, but uh, one would expect at the very least uh, they will be rid of the uh, dancing marijuana sandwich. All right, there we go. Um, intellectual property law is far beyond my understanding or even basic comprehension, but I, I think I can understand intuitively that there's got to be some sort of threshold where a similarity uh, stops and sort of outright theft or misappropriation of a likeness begins. So I'm glad that it's all sorted out because I don't really understand it. Yeah, and I mean, part of the analysis, of course, is, is there some harm in this? And sort of the fundamental issues would be things like, you know, are these two symbols you know, sort of close enough to be confusing. They're plainly not the same, uh, but are they close enough to be confusing such that there would be infringement? Yeah. Uh, but then that passing off element of it is looking at whether somebody could be confused to thinking that, you know, hey, am I in a toy store here? Is this, hey, what's going on? Why is Toys R Us selling marijuana? Um, 
that kind of thing. But there can also be damages that flow from the idea that you might be generally damaging the uh, or depreciating the goodwill somebody has built up as represented uh, by their uh, trademark. Um, if a person thinks, hey, this seems to be, a, you know, low quality marijuana cookies or something uh, that's being uh, flogged by the uh, the store that's uh, sort of appropriated the uh, image or likeness that's protected by trademark. The other interesting things with all of these is that they are decided in federal court. Uh, we do have a parallel federal court system, and so it is a separate court system from the one which would exist in British Columbia with the provincial court, BC Supreme Court, and Court of Appeal. We have a specialized federal court system uh, that would deal with matters including these, and so there is a completely different legal process that would be involved, and when you look at the cases, there are some interesting uh, differences there, including for example, I mentioned these large costs awards, both in the Toys R Us and in the Subway case. And the costs awards were based on, hey, what did this cost you to come here? Which is a different thing from how costs would be assessed if you were suing somebody in Supreme Court in BC, for example, where there would be a sort of a schedule of costs that ordinarily are not going to represent your actual costs of bringing or defending the case. And in both of these, the costs awards appear to have been based on counsel simply saying, this is what it cost my client. And the court saying, well, yeah, that seems reasonable. Uh, perhaps there would have been some more scrutiny had uh, either of these people decided to show up to defend it. Uh, but you can see that there are clear procedural differences, and it's a completely separate uh, parallel court system, which would deal with federal matters, including uh, trademark cases. All right. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking on CFAX. We'll take our first break and resume things right after this. Um, we'll be right back. Stick around. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking as we continue our conversation. Where were we? Well, the uh, next uh, story involves a uh, controversial uh, mine, which has been developed uh, in the District of the Highlands. Uh, that's been an issue out there uh, now for some time. Uh, and there was a, that uh, process involves, first of all, uh, approval from somebody who was the mines inspector. And I must say, if you asked a bunch of kids in kindergarten, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm guessing none of them stick up their hands and say, I want to be the mines inspector. But nonetheless, <laughs> we have a mines inspector in British Columbia. Excellent. Uh, and it matters because... Uh, the issue of whether you're allowed to set up a mine is not something which is decided by the local city council. Um, and the, the rationale for that, I, I suspect, is the fact that there aren't going to be a whole lot of city councils uh, that are going to be necessarily keen on the idea of a mine being opened up in their uh, municipality. I mean, hmm. Perhaps in some places, lots of good jobs may come from it, but uh, naturally people living next to the mine are probably not going to be too keen on that. Um, we saw that controversy play out, of course, up at Shawnigan Lake, where they were engaged in mining activity that uh, was uh, of concern in terms of water quality there. Um, and there's a similar concern about this approval for a mine in the District of the Highlands. And so there was a, a local community group, the Highlands District Community Association, that was trying to challenge the decision of the mines inspector to approve this uh, uh, mine and it was a mine that was going to be quarry quarrying rock uh, for the purpose of road paving. So it's got to come from somewhere, right? Um, and in this case, the mines inspector granted uh, approval, uh, and uh, the uh, community association took issue with that and tried to challenge that decision in court. 
which made its way most recently all the way up to the BC Court of Appeal. Um, and there are a few things that come out of that. Um, first of all, I must say, if you're the Highlands District Community Association opposed to the mine, you're probably not too happy with the Court of Appeal describing the District of Highlands as a, quote, semi-rural and industrial community. But in any case, there's now some judicial authority for that description of the Highlands. Hmm. Um, uh, and they, when you challenge a decision like that uh, in court, like an administrative decision about yeah. uh, something like, hey, can a mine be set up here? The basis upon which you can challenge that is an argument about, was that decision a reasonable one? Right, You don't get to go to court and say, hey, judge, what do you think of the idea of a mine in the you know, industrial community of the highlands? That's not the question a judge is allowed to ask. A judge uh, is not permitted to just substitute their view of the thing or whether they think this would be a good idea. A judge always needs to ask themselves, is this a decision which is reasonable? Right? Could yes. somebody justify the decision uh, that was arrived at? Uh, and... The, I think, creative argument uh, that the uh, Highlands District Community Association brought was, uh, was an argument that the mines inspector uh, had uh, not considered the issue of climate change when deciding whether to approve the mine. Uh, and indeed, the mines inspector was pretty blunt about that. The mines inspector in his decision essentially said that's an important issue, but is not relevant to the Mines Act. That is the issue of climate change. And so the community association argued that, hey, your failure to consider that amounted to making your decision unreasonable because you refused to consider something they said would be both important and required uh, under the Mines Act when making an assessment about whether this mine should have been approved. Uh, and so that's the basis upon which the matter got to court and the basis upon which the case went uh, all the way up to the Court of Appeal. And ultimately, the way the Court of Appeal approached it is that they um, they found that, well, the mines inspector, when they said, look, when the mines inspector said climate change is not relevant to the act, the Court of Appeal said, well, that comment was overly broad. It could form uh, a part of a decision, right? It's not fair to say that's not something that could be considered under the act because the act is quite broad in terms of considering uh, environmental factors. But the Court of Appeal said that didn't amount to uh, uh, making the decision an unreasonable one. The mines inspector was not required to go out and do their own investigation with respect to the impact on climate change or the uh, release of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, and so on that basis, the uh, Court of Appeal upheld the decision of both the mines inspector and the trial judge uh, who found that the mines inspector had acted reasonably and the Court of Appeal upheld that. And so the uh, the ultimate consequence is that uh, the mine, uh, despite the uh, objections of the members of the community association, uh, will carry on and presumably continue to uh, dig out rocks to pave roads. That appears to be the basis for it. So well. I guess the takeaway is you don't get to go to court and just argue it again. It's always looked at from the perspective of was the decision that was made a reasonable one uh, or not. And so that's uh, why we're going to have a mine in the uh, semi-rural and industrial community of the Highlands. I want to talk about the open court principle next, because I see it's being discussed once again, and it's a matter that you and I have touched upon any number of times in the past. The importance of, among other things, maintaining public confidence in the courts requires that the public is able to access information and reasons on decisions made and whatnot. Where are we going today? 
Yeah, it is a very important principle, and the uh, Supreme Court of Canada just reiterated that once again uh, in the uh, context of what was an application to seal the estate files relating to uh, Barry and Honey Sherman. That's the uh, wealthy couple from Toronto who was murdered in 2017 and for whom nobody has been uh, charged or convicted of committing that uh, apparent crime. Uh, And what happened in that case is that uh, the estate of the couple uh, was required to file for probate and so forth in uh, court there. Um, And the estate uh, applied to seal all of the uh, file uh, on the basis of an argument uh, that uh, allowing the public to have access to the estate file would uh, involve a uh, breach of privacy interests, uh, and they argued a risk to safety, uh, I suppose, necessarily of the uh, beneficiaries uh, of the estate. Um, and they succeeded initially in getting that order. Uh, but uh, thanks to the tenacity of the uh, a journalist from the Toronto Star, uh, that the decision to prevent any access to the estate file was successfully challenged. It went up to the Court of Appeal. The Toronto Star succeeded, uh, and then the estate appealed all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Supreme Court of Canada upheld the decision that the file should be open. Um, And in doing so, the uh, court reiterated that that principle, that rule, uh, that court proceedings are to be open to the public, uh, applies to uh, all manner of court proceedings, not just criminal or other things. It would include estate matters. Yes. Uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada has connected that important principle of openness uh, to the constitutional right to freedom of expression and described it as an essential feature of our democracy. And I, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, you know, everything we, we do sort of as lawyers in court uh, is uh, and court's decisions are, of course, presumptively open. And that's important. Not much good comes of secret proceedings, right? Like mm-hmm. we see in China, for example, where the uh, um, the uh, men that, uh, the Michaels, that China has just uh, held in custody in uh, retaliation for executing the warrant for the Huawei executive, yes. they wind up having sort of sub-secret court proceeding and nobody knows what on earth went on in there. Mm-hmm. Um, we are the opposite here. Um, And the Supreme Court of Canada does point out that public scrutiny can, of course, be a a source of inconvenience or indeed embarrassment for people. There there are lots of people with all kinds of things that would prefer that they have privacy, right? But the court has once again reiterated that sort of the general desire for privacy um, or indeed here, which was sort of a generalized claim of, well, there could be some physical risk, will not be sufficient. Um, so uh, there needs, there are, however, the court pointed out circumstances in which privacy concerns could rise to the level, uh, where there could be a discretionary ban on publication, but in order to get there, it cannot be simply a general desire for privacy and the approach that the Supreme Court of Canada has directed judges to take, um, is to analyze whether, uh, allowing public access to a file, court file, uh, would uh, potentially involve things like privacy that would rise to the level of interfering with the dignity of the individual dealing with information which would be so you know sufficiently sensitive yes. that it would go to what was described as the 
uh, biographical core of the individual. Hmm. Um, and so that's a pretty high threshold. Yeah. And here, for example, the files in question would show that they were, of course, allowed access. The files showed that, you know, the couple left their estate to their children equally, hmm. right? And there's nothing particularly um, sensitive about that uh, information that would sort of go to the, you know, biographical core of the individual. Hmm. Um, and so because there's this really high threshold created by the uh, principle of an open court process as is uh, bound up in the concept of uh, freedom of expression, um, that's not enough. And nor is sort of generalized comments about uh, the risk to safety of somebody. I mean, I, I suppose you can appreciate how in a general way, if you said, look, these were very wealthy individuals, they were philanthropists, uh, uh, and uh, they were murdered by persons unknown, I, I suppose it's not a, a crazy submission to say, well, perhaps if somebody else was shown to have inherited, you know, one or two billion dollars from them, perhaps that person would be in some jeopardy. But more than that is required. Uh, there has to be something specific. Those generalizations won't do it uh, because that concept of having an open, transparent process is just so important. Um, that's, I think, really what the uh, decision uh, stands for. And so if the public's interested, they can look at that uh, file. The court also commented that in some cases, there could be a middle ground which would uh, prohibit the publication of information that might be that sort of information that would yeah. go to the dignity of the individual, but still allow somebody, if they wanted to go and look at the file, to do that. Yeah. Uh, because, of course, that would allow uh, some clarity in terms of what the court's doing so that we're not in the back room making secret decisions. Indeed. Legally speaking, I learned something new every week, including this week. Thank you very much, Michael. Pleasure as always. Until next week. Always, always enjoy it. Have a great week. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan and Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, every Thursday on CFAX.